Good morning, Spring Meadows. Happy Sabbath to every single one of you. The Lord has been good. What do you say? Let us pray. Father, we ask that you speak to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Without love, it all means nothing, right? Said Paul. And it is love that is always placed when there is tension and when there is a sense of falling out, at least in the New Testament. And what a way to kind of end this month's series, which is Renew of Community. I asked my wife whether she had ever heard of a sermon about the Lord's Supper or communion on a day in which communion was not happening. She said no. And I also said, yeah, I haven't either. What a proper way to think about the Lord's Supper in a way that perhaps we haven't really allowed it to be and say what it needs to say so that we can be what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 goes like this. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear, says Paul, I hear that there are friction among you. The Greek word is schemata, right? And it continues, and to some extent, I believe it. Here's Paul with his comedic humor. I know this is happening amongst you, by the way. This is why I'm letting you know. For when the... When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. So, in other words... The intent is that the church is trying to do the Lord's Supper, but he's telling them what they're not doing. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And one goes hungry and another one becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Like, for real, what should I say that will convince you of this? In this matter, I can't say congratulations to you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed down to you. Right? This is the paradidome. This is the tradition that I'm handing over to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks... What did he do? He broke it and he said, this is my body, this is for you. Right? Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also. And after supper, he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. How little do we remember that as often? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Ooh. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some, and this translation says, some have died. But 
Paul doesn't use the typical word thanatos here. He says those who go to sleep, which is kind of the same imagery. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home. Why are you here? So that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. And about the other things, I will give instructions when I come. Oh, good old Paul. And you got to love the guy, primarily because, well, for one, he likes to eat, as we all do. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you better know what you're eating. And part of this is instructive for the church today. I remember when I first stepped into the high school, that would be really the place where the Lord called me. I remember that the chapel services were the best thing that I experienced while I was there. Chapel was really good on music, very, very good on music. And actually, the songs that everyone knew that I didn't were full of rhythms unforeseen in the display of bodily movement that people actually clapped in chapel was astonishing to me. It was a new thing. Y'all can do that? Uh, yeah. It's for the Lord. And the exuberance of joy in the faces of those worshiping. But it was during those chapel moments that it provoked me to think about what I was actually singing. And there were the lyrics, and I'm not going to sing them, praise God. <laughs> I'm going to sit at the welcome table. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. What is this? And then the second verse, I'm going to feast on milk and honey. I'm going to feast on milk and honey one of these days. And the unforeseen next verse is not too kind, but it's, it goes like this. I'm going to tell God how you treat me. I'm going to tell God how you treat me one of these days. But the song encapsulates the rhythmic imagery marinated in the display of consumption of Israel's delight as well as Israel's shortcomings as it goes through. It also pursues the anticipation of a possible welcome, a welcome in which the one who has never sat at the table now has the possibility to sit in something one day. This is not a song of privilege. It is a song of hope. It is a song of anticipation, a song of response, a song from outside the table. The ones who sing this aren't at the table. So consumption, 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 things you put into you, happens on a daily basis. Theologically, when you consume something, it has everything to do with history, with memory, as well as with the occupied space. 
When you consume something, it is effective. In other words, when you eat a nice sandwich, it goes into you, your body starts saying, I'm pretty good right now, right? But also, when you take a candle and you light it up, when the candle function is because it's being consumed, right? After providing life with light as well as with heat. Same thing with gasoline. Gasoline is only good when you burn it, actually, because it provides energy. It provides power. So, what is consumable is actually effective. Biblically, when you consume something, it has consequences. So I'm not here talking about dietary preferences, whether you like, you know, uh, a salad over, you know, a nice bean burrito or something. But in the Garden of Eden, human beings were seduced into the lure of being enlightened by the eating of a fruit. Jacob sells his birthright for a bowl of lentils. God sets up Passover as a celebration of the deliverance of, of Egypt. Israel complains about having too much manna, but they'd rather have pots and pans in Egypt. Satan then tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread. The Pharisees disliked Jesus because he didn't wash his hands because they thought that by quoting the Mishnah over the law would be beneficial for them. And the problem with eating is that it questions who are you eating with. Jesus ate with sinners. The Bible makes us question a couple of things. Those questions go as such. What am I eating? And why am I eating it for? And who am I eating it with? What am I saying? What am I portraying with my very act of eating? In my invitation to eat with you, am I doing it to deceive you because I want information from you? Am I doing this because I want to affirm you as a brother, as a sister? What do the meals actually represent, represent for us today? Is it just an excuse for us to interrogate one another about what our motives might be? Is it an excuse to hold things up against each other? A brother one time took me out to eat. I said, yeah, well, I join you. And the only reason why he took me out to eat is whether the pastor would grab a meat of some sort while he drenched himself in three plates of salad. That was the talk of the town. Is this truly a pastor? No. But more pressingly, who, are you with me? Who is at the table? Who is not at the table? And most of all, whose table is it anyway? In the church, throughout its rich history of 2,000 years, when it got to 1,000 years of maturity, it decided to split up because it came down to two questions that they could not deal with one another. The first question was, who can actually lead out in communion? Who can actually do the Lord's Supper? A woman, a man, a bishop, a non-bishop, a layman? Who? The second question was, what was in the Lord's Supper? What actually makes it the Lord's Supper? What is so special about bread and wine all together? 
later in the 16th century, the reformers actually were fighting about this, whether there was a literal or symbolic presence of Jesus in the bread or the wine, and you know the story. This is why the church in the West is so different from the East. And it comes to one thing, who you actually eat with. And that's why you have many denominations today. Now, contemporary issues are different. The contemporary issues are, I like red carpet instead of green carpet. See? So I, I want to do my own thing, right? A thousand years ago, it was, no, you don't have the authority to do this bread and juice, so, well, I'm leaving to somebody else who has authority. So as you figured it out a little bit already, the who and the what of the Lord's Supper has created problems in the church. But let me tell you one thing. Jesus is not the problem. And neither is the practice of consuming the bread and the wine. It's only a problem by those who believe they themselves are at the table already as owners and gatekeepers of the table while also practicing division by greed and being hungry to be number one. So, I'm sure like you and I, what in the world does this have to do with me? I could barely pay my bills. I got this bill. I got this. My aunt is hurting on her neck. You know, what does this have to do with us as a church? Everything. The Reformers, Zwingli, Luther, John Calvin, all had debates whether who was present at the table or not. As fine scholars that they were writing about the bread and the wine, all of them missed one little thing, and it's actually the evidence that you find that actually provokes this very discussion that 1 Corinthians 11 actually makes out to us. The question should be like this. What is provoking Paul to make the reference to the meal? And secondly, who are the bodies that are around at the table? So, here it goes. Number one, the Lord's table is actually God's initiative and not the church's. The church doesn't begin anything. Actually, God is the reason why we actually think about actually having a table. It is at the table where we start to realize God is God and I am just a guest. We gather because Jesus chose us first, you see, and that changes everything. It lays it plain for us to remember that there is only one Lord at the table, one Lord, not little lords. It is his table, and we all come amazed, drenched in awe by what God has done for us. So the next time you come in and you see each other, don't ask, what are they doing around here? Say, thank God you're here too. Who else do we need to tell and invite? That changes the picture of what the church is because the church, first of all, is always second. The church is always second. 
But the church only has one priority, and that's the Lord. See? So when you keep it together, you don't have to hashtag anything. You can bring it together because the Lord is all there. Number two, the Lord's table flattens, flattens, flattens all of us equally. The sex, sex, S-E-C-T-S, already in what Paul is addressing in the text, they don't even have to speak about what they're causing the division of. All they have to do is set up their own tables. Isn't it interesting that the most divisive groups, when things are trying to get, it is not what they say, it's actually what they're doing. And part of the activity suggests that they want their own little tables by themselves without really telling anybody else about them. And it's this motive of trying to create your little islands in which you kind of wonder, is the Lord in those little islands? And the fact is that the church will only prosper if you get rid of the little tables because there is only one table in the church. What do you say? What's interesting about this, and while the Lord's Supper was meant to be eaten by everyone, there are those who don't take eating seriously enough. And rather than the Lord's Supper being for everyone that gets their equal amount, for some it becomes a, a buffet for self-indulgence. This is the sort of referential that says, everybody matters as long as I get my first dips. It is at this table that we are reminded here that because of Jesus, it has nothing to do with what I bring to the table. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for me. And that keeps things centered. It keeps them in the subject matter. But it has to do with consumption, consuming. It is here where we find what and who we are. It is here where we look around and we look at our uniqueness, which means it can't be repeated. We look at our difference, our different backgrounds, our experiences that we have amongst each other. It is also here that we look around and we look at our same common human situation. We're all sinners saved by grace. All of us. So when you come to the table, you can look at each other and be like, what's up, sinner? And the other person says, by grace. This is the welcome table. So I kind of think and appreciate the theologian Stanley Harwas who says that he questions a little bit, who would have thunk of the church this way? Because the church has no credibility unless it's at the table. Eugene Peterson says that there are no experts in the company of Jesus. Praise God. We all come to the table hungry, wanting to be fed by him. It is here where I am welcomed, fully exposed at Jesus' presence with others. And at the same time, I am fully welcomed by the Lord himself. Exposed, but welcomed. Shamed, but graced. Sinner, but graced. Slave, free. 
And looking at the biblical text, you find out something in 1 Corinthians 11 that not many mention here, which is a bit too obvious. Nobody is speaking in the biblical text. There's no talking. There's no one voice that dominates in the Lord's table. And the point of the table is not merely to preach. It is simply to remember. It is to remember the death of the Lord. And we, we who are there, because of the act of God in Jesus Christ, God did not save his people by reason. He did not save them by greed. He didn't save them with an army. He did not save them with angelic illusions. He did not save them by capitalization. He did not save them by his own inheritance. He did not save them by selfish ambition. God himself gave himself in bodily form so that in his death we might live at the table because everything, everything that gets consumed gives life. And Jesus, being at the cross, was able to be consumed, gives life. And Jesus, being at the cross, was able to be consumed, consumed in death. And yet by doing so, we have life. Man. That thrills my soul because at the Lord's table, this is the place where we also do something drastic. This is the place where Paul says, wait for one another. What do you mean wait? Now, this is an intriguing phrase because it's unique to Paul. One sounds similar, so you could kind of play with it a little bit, either wait for Jesus' coming either wait for a brother who's kind of late to one of your meetings. You could either say that you're waiting on the Lord to come around, but here's the thing that wait for one another changes things here a bit because of the context. So I translated the passage considering its participle uses, which means simply things that continually happen. It goes like this. As you continually gather together, make sure everyone is received simultaneously as not to give preference to one or the other. Jesus has no partiality for you or this or that, and this is better and that is better. No, 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 no. Aren't you glad that God doesn't prefer you over somebody else? Aren't you glad that as filthy as you think you might be, God welcomed you to the table. That there is something within God that thinks that you are worthy because of Jesus to sit right next to him. Thank God that this is a God who's not ambitious and he's also not too weird. So, What I find interesting here is that the Lord's table, and forgive my Adventist language, but the Lord's table is is not about haystacks. I like haystacks. And when I'm hungry, like, I'm going to try to push myself to the end of, you know. But the Lord's Supper is not about when can I eat as I'm thinking that many of you want to do. 
But the Lord's table is where we treat one another as the Lord treats us, as invited guests, and not, listen to me, we are guests at the table, and none of us are products of church culture. The church is not built on hierarchies of leadership personalities. Praise God. It is the Lord's table, and it is the foundation of the table that it is grace that's been given to us from our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus invited us. No one else, because if it was up to somebody else, they would have excluded you. Jesus invited us, and the table is set up and sustained by Jesus. Jesus made the table. He invites whoever he wants. And this is an interesting. Why is the text so quiet? Because nobody can speak. Because we're too busy awed at God's work. How could you have done this? And by the way, he did this without our counsel. The Lord's table is the place where we wait for one another. It is the place of patience. Patience. What did I say? The Lord's table is about patience. It makes us see God's patience with us. It makes us see our own neighbor and realize that in doing together what we're there to do, it makes us patient with one another. So the table requires all of ourselves to be at the table. You can't have a rain check. I'll see you later, guys. In order for the table to be functional, you got to bring yourself, all of yourself, to the table. Body, mind, spirit that's been granted to us. The table is granted to the church as a gift that all of us are needing to be there to make it actually work. The Lord's table is the place where we wait for one another. And listen to me. This is a really key thing. At the Lord's table, it is the place of truth. We cannot lie to each other at the table. And you know why that is? Because Jesus is there. <laughs> Could you imagine lying in front of Jesus? Yeah. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> okay, okay. But the table is where truth happens. So the table, <laughs> at the table, we're exposed. In other words, the table is where truth speaks loudest. The church has a hard time. Listen to me. Can I give you like two little golden pieces of gold as wisdom? I won't charge you. The church, church, this one, this one, finds it easier to speak truth to the world but the table sets us up for something else. The church has to speak truth to itself. And that's tough. 
because when you lack integrity, you are no longer credible. And sometimes the reason people leave where truth is being spoken is because they feel exposed. But friend, brother, sister, no, 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 no. At the table, at the table, here we are, sinners saved by grace. And, and, and sometimes we don't have to speak to tell each other that truth. Truth here is not about logical deductions, nor is it about present things in regards to its own circumstantial events. We speak the truth as we find it in Jesus. And what does that truth sound like? I once was lost, but now I'm found. The church becomes credible when it recognizes its own weakness while trusting its full gift only in Jesus Christ. This morning, I began with a story about my high school chapel service. And you kind of want to summarize it a bit, a little bit, on this note. We like to think that there is only one table, but you think, Pastor, which table are you talking about, right? There is no table. <laughs> and it only happens once a quarter, twice, twice a year, 15 times, who knows? Where is the relevance? All of us have seats, not necessarily just in the sanctuary, but we have seats in different parts of where we actually belong, at home, at work, in the narthex, outside of church property, with our friends, with our families. I'm going to invite you this morning to think, where have you placed your table? And is your table allowing people to see Jesus? I invite you this morning to reflect on that. And may the Lord grant you grace, as always, and peace to you. I invite you all to stand with us for our last hymn. Yes. 
It was at a critical moment in my life, my senior high school year, my last chapel service. And I was in a rut that week. It was the week that I was furthest from God. And yet, here was this minister who gave an invitation. Come and share the bread and the wine. And my heart was pumping. And you knew that it had nothing to do with me, and there was a pool. Isn't it interesting that in your darkest moments you get the brightest light? And just when you thought that somebody had knocked you down, nasty relationship, bad marriage, you did something in the past, somebody knows something about you in which you're afraid to be exposed, And it was right then that you were, because Jesus was calling you. And who would Pastor B be if I did not give the same invitation this morning? For is there someone who's felt furthest from the Lord? Maybe this week. Very nice memorial weekend we're going to. Thank God. We're done with school. Teachers are excited. Pastors, well, we continue. (laughs) The reality is, The Lord never stops calling. And I want to give you an invitation, a prayer. If there's one or two this morning who just need an extra dosage of prayer this morning, I'm going to ask you to come up here right now. We have all things to do in the world today, I know. But if we're preaching about Jesus Christ and there's no Lord, there's no pool to where God wants you to be, allow him to do it. He will do great things for you. There are people who are praying for you for this very moment because we believe God himself will do it. But allow him to do it. And part of the welcome table isn't that, oh, I got a lot of baggage and I can't make it. Just say Lord, I I just want to get a little taste of the crumbs. The table is for you. One, that all, I myself am here. Maybe you haven't been at church all that long. Maybe not even online, not engaged in prayer, Bible study, wherever that may be. Is there one or two? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Bless you, my brother. Because God is pulling you. He knows all of you. Don't look at the person sitting next to you. They too are at the table in a weird way. But God is gracious with everything that he does. So, I'm going to ask you guys to come here. Come on down. It's all right. I got you. We got four. Let's make it five. There you go. Come at me, bro. There you go. Praise God. Praise God. There you go. Come. Come. Jesus is good, isn't he? It's awesome stuff. Anyway, just letting you know, wherever you may be, Wherever it is that you might be, just because I sit at the 
you know, second step here. I'm not bigger than you guys. I'm not more important. I sit at the table just like you, except my task is a little different. I'm more exposed because even with my filth, I have to make the welcome. But that's what grace does. It's a pull. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray for you. Is that all right, church? Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for these individuals who come by. They're my friends. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. You are the one who knows everything about them. You know their hearts. You know where they are. You know what they need. So I ask, Lord, that you give them food that only comes from you. And whatever has convicted them this morning, whether it's given their life to you, whether it's beginning something of a walk with you, whether it's deliverance that's impeding them from coming to the table, I ask that in Jesus' name you deliver them from it and that you take them to places they haven't been before. And we ask that your spirit work in their lives in a mighty way. If there is a person, if there is a marriage that needs some bridging, some fixing, some healing, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. But perhaps there's something we're addicted to. Who knows? We ask for deliverance. And we all who are at the table, as feeble, weak ones, ashamed at times, we want to thank you that you've called us your own. Here we are, Lord. Use us. Do amazing things to us on this day. We ask you this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would like to talk to these great people just for one or two minutes. Is that cool? For the rest of you, may the Lord bless you and keep you forever. Have a great Sabbath.